0: It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy, restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the Money Guy. Well, we are back. few of you have emailed wondering where in the world the Money Guy show is. Well, I want to kind of tell you some of the things that have happened since we did the last show. You guys have been outstanding on giving me some feedback on the show. And one of the things that I got some feedback on was just the quality of the sound. I am a tech junkie. I am a complete tightwad about everything in life, but I will tell you where my weakness is is dealing with gadgets. And when I saw that a few of you guys were concerned about the quality of the sound, I didn't want anybody turning off this show because they didn't like how uh, the clarity or background noises or echoes. So I've tried to make a few changes. Uh, this has been a bigger ordeal than we imagined because it just didn't go as we expected. So in a minute, I'm going to go give you a few details on what happened. Um, but first, I want to welcome everybody to the show. Thank you so much for all the old listeners who have continued to subscribe and come back and listen to the, what else I have to say in the coming weeks. But then there's also quite a few of you that are brand new to the show, and I just want to welcome everybody here and just thank you so much for coming. Now, you're probably wondering um, – who is this Brian Preston, the money guy? And I just want to, you know, just recap for the people who are just joining the show is I'm actually, by day, this is not my day job. This is just kind of a hobby that I'm doing just to see how this goes. But um, I am a, a personal financial planner, fee-only financial planner, uh, that does wealth management and financial planning uh, for clients of the high net worth variety. I am a certified public accountant, a certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist with over 10 years of experience in doing this. So I'm giving you some free advice here, and um, hopefully you're getting a little benefit from it. I think a few of you are, because I am getting a lot of feedback from clients and listeners, um, and I really appreciate that. That makes me feel really good. Like I said, this is not my day job, more of a hobby. So as you can imagine, there's not a lot of money being made off this. Uh, This is what I would call my field of dreams. You know, we kind of... Heidi, who's my producer, and works with me here at Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. That's my day job. If you want to check us out, you can go to the website at Preston-Cleveland.com. Um, if you want to check out the Money Guy website, it's actually money guyguycom You can go get show notes. I'm going to give you some additional links that you can go look at for whatever we're talking about on the um, financial chaos topic. But feel free to go out there and visit us and look at how everything's are. But this is my field of dreams. I did this show just to see how things would go, and it's been much more successful than I ever could have thought. We've added subscribers. On average, I think we're adding somewhere between 60 to 70 subscribers a week. Um, we're getting a lot more feedback. We kind of yo-yo back and forth on that iTunes popularity list under the business. So hopefully that will, um, as we continue to grow, we can continue to notch up on our um, iTunes rating. So um, one of the things you can do, if listeners are always giving me feedback, but if you want to try to help us out on the show, um, I really enjoy the emails, but also you would help me out tremendously if you could write some nice comments on the iTunes website. You know, none of those are artificial. I don't go out there and put my own reviews. I want you guys, the listeners, to really do it because I think really honesty and true listener feedback is the only thing that's going to help us continue to grow. But um, I wanted to go into, because, you know, I've jumped in. One of the things I've realized by some of the feedback I've, I've gotten from you listeners is really how cutting-edge we all are for doing this podcasting thing. Most of the feedback I'm getting, I mean, you guys, you can just tell you are technical-type people um, from some of the suggestions you all had on technology for my podcast as well as formats that I can, you know, put the title of the, the show. But I want to tell you, because I think a lot of you probably are the same way, why I think podcasting is the next big thing. To me, I think there's a good chance that in the next five to six years, Radio will still be around, but I think radio is dead in the terms of how successful it's been in the past. And my reasoning for saying that is that I think America and society as a whole become has become more T-vote. And when I say that, when I'm saying we've been t is that we're all impatient and we want to do things on our own time. I know I'm a huge fan of the DVR T-vote technology where I don't have to be at home at 8 o'clock if I want to go watch the latest episode of American Idol um, or, or whatever TV show my wife and I want to watch, we can watch it whenever we want to on our own time. Well, I think that has happened, you, and you've seen the huge progression of that on the TV side and with satellite and cable, but you have not seen it with radio. And it's getting to that point when you're driving in the car, maybe you have a personality that you like to listen to on the talk radio channels, but you're never in the car from 12 to 3 or 9 to 1 whenever they're on the radio so with podcasting in your iPod or MP3 player, whatever technology you're using, you have the ability to take that show with you whenever you want and listen to it and pause it. Say you get to the bank and you need to go in and make a deposit. You've got that show. You just put it on pause and, you know, go on with your life and then come back and you don't miss a thing. I love the technology of this podcasting. I think it really is going to be a big thing. I could also see a lot of publications and other things. Um, wanting to get more into the podcasting because this is going to be the new content area for a lot of people in the future. So that's that's just kind of my nutshell, and I'm sure a lot of you guys, y'all are the early adopters of this technology, um, and I think as more and more people catch on to this, we're going to just hopefully grow with that uh, trend in technology and the change that people will have in their coming lives. Um I want to give you guys kind of a teaser on what we got coming up. Today's financial chaos topic. Remember, the whole purpose of this show is we're going to try to add a little order to your financial chaos by answering your questions as well as just giving you basic, general, good advice um, that you're probably not hearing from anybody else out there. But today's financial chaos topic is researching and choosing a good financial advisor. Now, believe me, financial advisors are a dime a dozen. You can find them anywhere. You can find them in most um, shopping centers. You know, I, you see financial advisor places in all these shopping centers. You see them, you know, with the big guys like Merrill Lynch, Smith, Barney, and then there's a few of us fee-only planners out there that I consider um, to be, you know, a little more on the same side of the table as the, the clients because we don't get paid commissions, sales charges. Our advice I consider a little bit more objective, and I'm going to try and give you some tidbits truly on how to keep yourself from getting ripped off while they're managing your money. Um, I do want to go over some listener feedback. Typically when we've done this show, we've gone through the formats, Ben. I've, I've given you two or three articles um, that I've found very interesting in, in the financial media, and then I've gotten right into the financial chaos topic. Well, this is going to change today because we've gotten some great feedback from some of my listeners, and I want to share that with you because um, you all asked me some great questions, and I think when you ask these good questions, these are good show topic ideas Plus, I can go ahead and hopefully give you some advice and let you move on with some other things. But the, the first one was I got an email from a, a gentleman by the name of Scott who had asked me some questions on entering the field of financial planning. I had sent him some thoughts on that. But Scott was actually the one that had mentioned that, um, you know, he was curious how we were set up with technology on recording the podcast. Well, because of Scott's email – and my concern that we we're going to lose subscribers over the sound, you ought to see this office now. Let me tell you some of the changes we've made so Scott can know what an impact he's had on us is um, like a nut, we have gone out and I bought now, first of all, we were already doing we've got the you know the microphone with the the mixer board, um, the popper in front of it. We've got you know um, we do, we're using some free software to record the podcast, but the big changes is I'm standing and versus where in the past I was facing Heidi while we did the show and talking to her. Um, but I was told there were some echoes. So now what we've done is I've moved my microphone over to the corner of the room. We have bought acoustic tiles, these 12 by 12 acoustic tiles that now we have pinned and, and velcroed to the wall. To where, and even covered one of Heidi's windows. Hopefully Heidi, fortunately she has big windows in this office, so she's not sitting in a complete black box, but we have taken out some of her windows um, so we can try to make the sound a little bit better. That was one upgrade. Also, we went out and bought a new recording software. We bought the Sony um, SoundForge Studio software, so hopefully we could... Um, you know, we, we wanted to make sure we were we, if we go upgrade one thing, let's upgrade everything because truly the sound is going to reflect the weakest link. So we wanted to go in and upgrade those. So we did um, change the recording studio. We've also, and this was the big thing that's kind of caused the delay. And I want you to know I apologize for not having this show out last week, but the big delay was we did some tests on the sound card that was on Heidi's computer. And it was putting out a lot of sound just itself, meaning it was not background noise. It was nothing. It was just distortion that was coming from the sound card. So we decided to upgrade the sound card. Sounds good. Well, I went on, you know, I did a little price comparison shopping, went to Amazon, buy. I found a great sound card that was recommended from one of the podcast books and ordered it. It came in, and it was... um, we installed it, Heidi and I, you know, we, we took it apart, took up the computer apart, installed it, and everything was good. But I got to tell you, when we went to plug it in to start recording, it was a lot different than the sound card that was in that, meaning there was a lot more controls, there was compatibility issues with some of the software we were using. So we had to call in, and fortunately, Heidi had some friends who actually do a lot of sound engineering and other work, um, for their churches and some bands and some other work. So she was able to call in the reinforcements with Billy, one of her friends, and he came in um, on Monday and straightened us out. So I am just happy to report we've got everything. Hopefully if um, this is going to sound a little bit better, then the quality's going to kick up a little bit better than what you've heard in the past. But, Scott, you are the cause of that. So I want to just give you a, a shout-out and tell you thanks so much for the feedback, and hopefully you guys will notice um, the change in the quality of our recording. I also wanted to um, talk, I got an email from uh, a gentleman by the name of Ivan who is from the Philippines, which is pretty exciting to think that we have listeners from all over the place listening to us. He asked about unit investment trust. And I wanted to kind of go over, his his question was, um, you know, how do they compare versus mutual funds? Are they um, are they good? And I wanted to just give you my thoughts. Now, unit investment trust, just in case those of you out there, and we always try to make this as simple as possible They're known in short as UITs. And what they are, they're really just a basket of individual investments. And they can buy into anything just like mutual funds can. They can be stocks. They can be bonds. They can be specialized investments. But unit investment trusts, um, they do offer the benefit of offering specialized and diversified portfolios really for affordable minimums. I mean, it only costs generally about $500 to $1,000 just to get into them. However, let me tell you, I'm not a huge fan of unit investment trusts just because they generally charge loads or sales charges and commissions. And as you know, I think you don't need to be paying a lot of those sales commissions and, char- and and sales loads because it just doesn't put the person who brings these products to your attention on the right side of the table. Not that people don't need to make money off of offering you good financial advice. It's just I want them to have their motivation to be on the same side as yours. So that is one of the concerns I have. They're also, a lot of them offer... They do have deferred sales charges, meaning that they do have fees when you go to sell them at a later date, and that concerns me a little bit. Um, in addition to the commissions, there are annual fees that they, they use to cover basic operating expenses. That's not much different than mutual funds. But I do think that you have to worry about some of the fees and structures. I think there that's where the difference between them and mutual funds are, is that if I was going to choose between a unit investment trust or a no load mutual fund. I think the no load mutual fund will work better if you're using, you know, really a, a tried and true proven mutual fund that has no upfront loads. It's no load. Um, and it, and it's done very well among its peers because the more money you keep in your back pocket by not paying excessive fees is more money you get to make. So that's, that's my thought is that I, I think that truly you can do better if you, do, um, if you deal with the mutual funds, the no-load mutual funds versus the unit investment trust. I also got an email from another Scott, and he had a great question about 401Ks and taxes. And I w- I'm just going to read you what Scott's email was. It said, his email, this is what Scott said. He said, I just discovered your podcast, and I'm glad to find someone doing a podcast that is offering honest advice. I have a question based upon something I heard from Susie Orman. She suggested that in today's tax environment, one should only load your 401k to the company match. The reason is there is no way that future tax rates will be lower than the present rates for most people. Does it make sense to invest the 10% over my 5% match into a regular tax-efficient index fund instead of the 401k? I no longer qualify for the Roth. This is a great, great question. Um, just to recap, and I've talked about this in some of the other shows. You know, my thought is that you want to obviously load up the Roth if your income is below that threshold. And for, for married couples, it's, it phases out between that 150 to 160 um, income level. And then for single individuals, I think it phases out somewhere between 90,000 to 100,000. So if you do make more than those thresholds, you, you can go ahead and disregard this first part. But for most people who don't make those income thresholds, I want you to do the Roth IRA um, after you do your 401k match. Do the 401k match because that is free money from your employer. That is just essentially money that the the employer is giving you free because the government has given them some economic incentives to do it. So go ahead and do the, the 401k match all the way to the match point and then jump over to the Roth IRA. Fully fund your Roth IRA and then if you have leftover money, I do think if you don't have credit card debts and other type of debts that um, are what I call bad debt, meaning you know mortgages are okay as long as your interest rates okay, but if you have credit card debts or car loans that um, are really bad debt, I want you to pay those off. But if you've already got those paid off, come back to those fo- to that 401k again and really max that out. And I, I know what Susie is saying because right now with the 15% on capital gains and the 15% on dividends. Tax rates are at an all-time low for investing. Um, and there is a good chance that in the future that that is going to change if, if Congress changes over and they take away some of these tax advantages that have come about. But if you're in the, pers- the high-income tax bracket, like it sounds like Scott is because he can't do the Roth IRA, I think that there is a huge benefit to getting that, that lower tax. Because when you do the 401K, remember, that's coming out pre-tax, so it's lowering your actual taxable income. And if Scott is not able to do the Roth IRA, he's probably in a high tax rate, and that's a person that definitely should be doing the 401k all the way to the, to the, the max that they can do, the $15,000. That's, and that's probably pretty good advice if you go back to my rule of thumb, that you need to be saving 15 to 20% of your gross income so you can put that 401k into that. So I think, Scott, my advice is you can't do the Roth IRA. It sounds like you're in a high tax bracket. Go ahead and load up. That um, 401k, because when Susie, if you noticed, um, you even said she said the reason is that there is no way the future tax rates will be lower than present rates for most people. You might not be most people, Scott, because you're one of these high income earners. So if you do have high income, definitely load up that 401k because there is a good chance when you retire that your, um, you know, that 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 savings that you're getting on lowering your income, that fifteen thousand dollars now, and, and saving that thirty three Um, percent on your taxes, because if you're in that high tax bracket, you might be in a lower tax bracket than that 33% when you retire, uh, maybe the 15 to 25% bracket, and you will get some additional tax savings. So that's my advice to you, Scott, is to, um, consider doing the 401k. And I know, and even though Susie's giving great advice, she's probably not talking about somebody in your income bracket. Um, I also got an email from, um, Edward, who had asked me to, to give some advice on, Variable annuities, because talking about Susie Armand, I'd done a list of the um, 12 things not to do um, to ruin yourself financially, and one of them was that you need to stay away from variable annuities. And I got this email from Edward, and his. I'm just going to read this email as well. It says, please speak more about variable annuities. I'm not sure if I should invest in one or not. Your last podcast stated in one of the 12 things not to do was invest in annuities. Please explain why not and give the advantages, if any. I am 53 with a windfall and good job with a pension and will retire at age 62 with 30 years in government. um the reason I said do not do variable annuities is truly because they are outrageously priced. There is usually commissions built into them that can range somewhere between 2 to 6 percent depending upon the product you're dealing with. There is no reason that you should enrich somebody by paying that much money. They're, you're not getting the benefit for what you're paying, so stay away from variable annuities. Now let me say this, Edward. Um, also, let me tell you, Ed, variable annuities. We've talked about 401ks. We've talked about Roth IRAs. These are great ways to save for retirement. Variable annuities—they have that. The person who's going to try to sell you this is going to tell you they grow tax deferred as well. But this goes back to what Susie was talking about: is that if why would you put something in that you're not going to get a tax deduction? And that's what you get with the 401k: is you essentially are lowering your taxable income. Why would you invest in a variable annuity where you're not going to get a tax deduction? You just go get a lower tax. Uh, you to let your money grow tax deferred, meaning you're not going all the in- earnings aren't gonna be taxed right now. But why would you do that when what Susie's talking about is capital gains are at fifteen percent, dividends are at fifteen percent, but you put this money in this annuity, it's gonna grow, but sure when you pull it out, you're probably gonna pay income taxes at ordinary levels, which is gonna be twenty-five percent. Why would you do that? That's why I think variable annuities don't even make sense from a tax standpoint. So stay away. And plus since we know the savings rate in America is actually negative at the moment. Nobody's loading up their 401Ks and Roth IRAs like they should, so that's even more reason because the only people that need to go to variable annuities, even textbook-wise, and I don't even know if I would recommend this for them, are people who fully maxed out their Roth IRAs, fully maxed out their 401Ks, can't put any more, and they're still trying to find ways to defer their income. Well, then you could look at a variable annuity, but that doesn't even make sense because you're paying that 2 to 6% commission. Now, Edward, I do want to tell you there is a difference. There's what's called fixed annuities, too, that are very different than the variable annuities. Variable annuities are attached to some usually stock or bond product, and you fluctuate just like the market does. Now, fixed annuities um, that a lot of retired people have looked at in the past, and with interest rates going up, probably will be a good time to look at again in the future, can offer you a fixed rate of return, meaning that you might have an annuity, and I haven't done any research on these recently because I don't have any clients that have asked me to look in the last few months. But if, say, the interest rate was guaranteed at 65 to 7%, that's probably out of line with market, but I'm just making up a number, you know that you could guarantee yourself that rate of return, and they're going to guarantee you an annuity stream for the rest of your life. Not a bad thing to look at in retirement as long as the fee structure is controlled. They are different products than variable annuities, and for some people, especially close to retirement, if you don't have pensions, You might want to consider annuitizing a portion, a small portion of your portfolio just to guarantee that you do have money coming in. Now, Edward, it sounds like you're going to have a pension from the government. Um, You might not want to consider that because if you have a pension coming it's going to cover the baseline levels of your living expenses in retirement you might need um, to invest the rest of it maybe in a diversified portfolio to see if you can grow your assets to supplement that income even more because you've already got that good base core covering by having a good pension coming from your employer or the government. But hopefully that helps you out, Edward. Um, I also got an email from Jane who um, has suggested some changes on the file format. I hope you'll notice when you go to download the show that we have changed the way we record the show and, and labeled it so that it will fit on your MP3 player screen or your iPod screen a little bit better and let you organize things. So I really, really appreciate the feedback you guys have given me. It has helped out tremendously, and I'm doing everything I can to make you guys happy. Now, Heidi and I have had a talk about a few things, and she's asked me some questions from time to time about my tightness because I am a tight wad in most things except for gadgets. I will tell you that's my fatal flaw is that I do love gadgets. I love, um, you know, I like having the high-definition TVs and those type of electronic deals, but with other things, I am a complete tight wad. And she had asked me a few questions like, um I know when I go out to restaurants, I typically don't order, you know, Cokes or sweet teas or anything like that. I will order a water because I just can't believe that they charge somewhere between $1.75 to seventy-five to two twenty-five for Coke well, you can go buy a two-liter for 99 cents in the grocery store. That just seems insane to me. But she was asking, and one of the funny stories, and she said you really ought to put that in the podcast because I think people love to hear that stuff. Is she was asking if I dated in high school or in college? How did girls, how did I hand, get a girlfriend with as tight as I was when I go out to restaurants and use coupons and everything else in the past? And I said, well, how especially in high school, I had perfected the seven-dollar date. And she immediately laughed and said that I reminded her of some of her um, past dates in the past. But I, I had perfected the $7 date. And I want to give you the details, because just in case there's any high school students that are listening and you're trying to figure out how you can cut an edge off and save a little money, is that um, I had figured out I could go to Taco Bell with my date. And we could get soft tacos, and I could probably get, we could get the meal within $5. And then we would head out after that, and we would go to the to the dollar movie theater. It was right down the street, and, you know, and it was a little dirtier in there, a little stickier when you sat down, but it was a movie theater, so, uh, you know, we we do the dollar theater, but before we go to the dollar theater, I'd actually go, this place is out of business now, it was a store called Farmore that um, had 25-cent Coke machines as you left the building, but they also had just rows and rows of um, candy, you know, so I, we would go get a box of Goobers or some M&Ms or whatever, and they'd be like, you know, 50 cents and then we do our quarter Coke, so I'd probably have about a dollar and a quarter in refreshments. So if you, between the four or five dollars that were at Taco Bell, the two dollars for the movie, and then the dollar and fifty for refreshments, I could get it pretty close to seven dollars. And, um, I never thought that was a problem, but that probably did make sense on why I didn't date as much in high school, because I was a complete, um, tight as well as a little on the, the gawky side, because I'm a tall, Skinny guys, so um, that probably didn't help either. But I did want to kind of give you some feedback on on the lifestyle of being a complete tightwad. I've also got in trouble, and this is a great consumer thing for me to tell you: is this even this past year? Because I don't want you to think this is just while I was back in high school and college, because I've been out of that for over ten years now. Is even this past year, my wife loves reading the US weeklies, you know, to keep up on what's going on with Brad Pitt and Angelina, and you know, and, and Jessica Simpson and all the other celebrities out there. She loves the gossip stuff. I'm going to confess, my dirty little thing is I love to read those things on Saturday morning when I wake up to take care of Avery while she's watching the kids' program. It's kind of fun to flip through that stuff. You know, there there is something entertaining about those gossip rags. But um, she wanted Us Weekly. So I went on PriceGrabber.com and and typed in Us Weekly, and there was this fine site that supposedly could give me a year, 52 issues, since it does come weekly, for like 29 or $31. Well, you know, that was a good bit cheaper than the... um you know, what the magazine was offering. So I signed up in December. Well, here it is. What is it now? The beginning of April, magazine never showed up. I think it was a complete scam. So I just want to caution you. Being a tightwad is not always a good thing because you can hurt yourself. And um, the good news is I bought it through a credit card. I've already called, charged it back, um, got my money back, and now I've bought the magazine directly from Us Weekly. And I would suggest that with all magazines, be careful when you're out there looking at price grabber um, or any of these other price comparison sites, I think when you're buying magazines, it might make sense to buy directly from the source because you just never know who you're dealing with. But that is one of the things that you can get burned on. So that's one of the fun things out there that, you know, just giving you a little feedback on what type of personality you're dealing with here. I am um, I am a little on the um, conservative side when it comes to parting money from my hands, except for unless you're selling me something electronic and then I'm willing to give you a little bit more of the money. But let's jump right into the financial chaos topic today, because this is a good one. This is one that directly impacts you know, how I do business as well, because I am a financial advisor, so I think I can give you a little insight that you might not have heard from somebody, because I can give you some of the dirty little secrets of this industry. And I've also been on both sides of the coin. I am, a, like I said, a, a NAPFA, meaning I'm, I'm a registered um, NAPFA advisor, meaning I've met all their criteria. That's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, the fee-only guys. I am one of their registered advisors. Um and have been on the fee-only side for the last six and a half years. Uh, before that, I was a registered rep at a broker-dealer, so I don't want you to think um, that I, I'm just giving you this from one side. I've actually been on the broker-dealer side as well. So I think I'm pretty balanced to give you some some truly objective advice on how you want to research and choose a financial advisor. And one of the first places I went out to was out to the SEC, which is the Se- Securities and Exchange Commission. That's the regulatory body. That kind of governs all people who are in this industry. Uh, they they have some advice, and the, the, what they say on the Securities and Exchange Commission website, they said the best advice is is that you can you need to ask questions. Asking questions is the way you can protect yourself. And I've probably told you this in previous podcasts: is don't trust anybody with your money. Trust is something that needs to be earned and verified before you just hand over your money without finding out all the details from people. But let's talk about, I went to three different places to get you some great questions that you can ask of whatever financial advisor you're looking to hire. The first place I went was the SEC. Like I said, that's the Securities and Exchange Commission. They're the guys that overlook this, the government that overlooks this, um, this entire industry. And I will tell you, it's getting tougher on this industry just because some of the crazy things that have happened in the last few years with Enron, uh, as well as some of the hedge fund scandals that came about in 2004. So this is getting a harder and more highly regulated industry, um, much to the pain of much many of us financial advisors that are trying to do the right thing for our clients. But let's talk about the SEC. I'm just going to read you some of these questions, interject some thoughts throughout it, but they, they, some of their questions are, how long has your firm been in business? That's very important. You definitely don't want to go out there and drop your entire life savings on somebody who just hung up the shingle last week. Also, what training experience do you have? You, this is this goes without saying. You do not want somebody who's cutting their teeth and learning how to manage money. If you're dealing with, this is your nest egg, meaning you've compiled this money over your entire life, and this is all you've got in retirement because we know that, like I told you in previous podcasts, 401Ks are going the way of the dodo. They're extinct. So you've got to make sure that whoever you're giving your money with is, is got experience and knows what they're doing with this. Also ask about the investment philosophy of the advisor. This is from the SEC, and what they mean by that is you do not want to find somebody who's going to start promising you how rich you're going to become from dealing with their management. If you've if you've built up a financial nice little nest egg, your biggest concern should be capital preservation with growth. You do not want to have somebody who's going to tell you they're going to find the next Microsoft and make you a gazillionaire because realistically – That means you're going to be taking a lot more risk than your portfolio can probably handle at your age. So you want to have somebody who's going to tell you their philosophy is more long-term, it's consistent, and they're going to be completely diversified and watch the market and try to overweight where there's opportunities and underweight where they think things are overvalued. Also, get the people to describe your typical client and get them to provide you with the names and telephone numbers of some of their long-term clients. You're going to hear that throughout a lot of these questionnaires. They recommend that at a lot of places. Also ask how do they get paid. Ask if it's by commission. Also ask them how much, how much in assets they manage. So this will help you see their experience level and what their typical client is if you find out how much they're managing. Um, and also ask them if they make more money if they buy a specific or stock investment or mutual fund rather than another because you will find out that a lot of broker-dealers and others do have what's called sales incentives, um, they'll have these lunch and learns and other things where brand new funds get set up by a mutual fund company and that wholesaler for that mutual fund will come in and offer them vacations, prizes, trips, all kind of things if they can sell more of that fund. I have seen, I've personally been uh, seen these things occur when I was on the broker-dealer side. They do exist, so you need to ask if, um, if they do get make more f- from this. Also, this SEC has, are you participating in a sales contest? Exactly what I just talked about. They, um, there are incentives out there for people to try to sell you certain products, um, and then also the last SEC question I have is, is if your firm, if your financial professional changes firms, ask them if they make money from changing firms. You will see if a, an advisor say at Merrill Lynch and then they switch over to Smith Barney, um, a lot of times they're signing bonuses and other incentives they get from switching. So you need to find out if that's the case and if they are. Find out what they're doing for you to make you go through all that that pain of doing the paperwork, and maybe this is a good time for you to make that split if they're not doing everything on your best interest. The next organization that I consulted to get some answers was the AARP. You all know that's the retired organization, Um, and they had some good questions as well. One of the first things they asked is, um, will the advisor provide a written statement of the total dollars and fees and commissions earned by the firm and the affiliated broker-dealer, insurance agent, or similar organization because of their relationship. And that's important. You need to know what you're paying them because I will tell you, most advisors, those fees are so far embedded in there on page 26 of that 50-page legal document called the prospectus that you'll never be able to figure out what they're paying. So it's better if you go ask them and find out for sure what their compensation is so you can understand it. This next point is huge, and you'll hear me talk about this on the NAPFL Questionnaire two, but, and this is a new thing that just happened actually in the last two months that has changed significantly from the SEC. It says, do you accept fiduciary responsibility across all aspects of our relationship? That key word in that sentence was fiduciary. And what does fiduciary mean? Fiduciary means that the person working for you owes you the highest possible duty of care and loyalty. So the relationship of trust and confidence exists between you and the planner. Now this sounds like this is common sense. You would think you give your money to somebody that they are going to take advantage, you know, provide you the best possible possible advice um, for your best benefit. But that is not the truth. Um, a lot of a lot of the the dealers, broker dealers out there, have, uh, do not have a fiduciary responsibility to you. They are actually listed as salespeople. If you list, read all the fine print that is on the disclosure forms they give you, you will notice that they tell you that all advice is incidental. You know, if they give you advice, if you watch these commercials and you see um, these American Express advisor, I think they're called Ameriprise. They always show people who are getting close to retirement or they're dealing with weddings. You know, these are all these life events that you think that you're going to them for planning, and then you find out um, that these guys are broker dealers that they do not have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure they're making the best decisions on your on your for your side and your benefit. So you need to be very careful to make sure that they do have fiduciary responsibility. Many of them. Are not allowed to. The brokerages do not allow them to have that relationship because they recognize that advice is incidental, and their main purpose is to sell you products. Be very, very careful. This is also what's known as the broker deal—I mean, the Merrill Lynch rule. Um, they have written into the SEC laws that broker dealers do not have to comply with the same level of of, of being a fiduciary to the clients as a registered investment advisor does. And that's what I, I'm actually a registered investment advisor. Um, but you do not, they do not have the same level, um, of responsibility to the client that we have because they are considered salespeople who provide incidental advice. Whereas a registered investment advisor, I have a fiduciary responsibility that I am going to do everything in my power to do the right decision for you and make the best, um, you know, decisions for your interest. So that is a huge, huge thing I want you to pay attention to is fiduciary responsibility and making sure that whoever you're dealing with is sitting on the same side of the table as you. The next thing that the ARP brought up is to the extent that you'll be giving me ongoing investment advice, will you be providing me with a quarterly written report of my portfolio with a rate of return along with benchmarks very similar to my portfolio? You know, a lot of people will tell me they've been with an advisor for years, but they have no idea how they're doing. You've got to have some type of um, measurement to know if your guy is doing the right thing for you so you can measure their worth to you. Um, I think that is one of the most valuable things you can do is to make sure you're getting good service. And then the last thing is please provide two references from clients who have worked with you for at least the last five years. So that that way you can see what a long-term client thinks about this person's advice. The next set of questions I went and um, referenced was the NAPFA. Like I said, the NAPFA, if you're curious – is um, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. We're the fee only organization. Um, get a lot of great recognition from the print medias like Kiplinger, um, Smart Money, and some of the others, Money Magazine, you know, because we are objective in the fact that we're giving completely fee only advice. Well, NAFTA has a list of questionnaires, has a list of questions that you need to ask financial advisors. And I want to go over a few of those. It says, What are your financial planning credentials, designations, and affiliations? remember you can kind of tell what type of person you're dealing with by the level of their credentials to an extent it's just like I've already given you my you know my list of letters is you know I am a certified public accountant a certified financial planner and a personal financial specialist every one of those means something and they all have different requirements on how much continuing education that I have to do throughout the year just to make sure I'm staying current on things so you want to ask because you it would probably make sense to try to get somebody if you're going to hire a professional money manager to ma- manage your nest egg, your life savings, why not to go get somebody who's actually been trained in education for this? This is not somebody who just as a life change decide they, hey, I like money. Um, I think I can make money. Why don't I go just tell people I'm a financial advisor? And believe it or not, you can do that. This is one of those few industries, if you can go past like the Series 7 or a few of these tests, to just show that you're competent enough to tell people what a mutual fund is, you can go out there and give advice and call yourself a financial representative. I think you need to do more due diligence than that by actually hiring people that have credentials. Like I will tell you, to be a CPA, obviously I had to take a, a pretty comprehensive test. And then you had to work under a CPA for two years. Also, CPAs are required to have five-year degrees from colleges with a field of study and accounting. Uh, the next thing, certified financial planners, you have to pass also a rigorous test as well as work in the industry for three years. So there's all kind of rigorous things that you can expose yourself to to make sure that you're getting an advisor that actually has a background in this stuff. Um, the next NAPA question that they had was, how long have you been offering financial planning services? And this gets back, you don't want to get that planner that's cutting his teeth and first learning how to manage your money. Um, <laughs> that's just not a good thing. Also, do you have clients who might be willing to speak with me about your services? You know, that's as simple as asking, do they have references? I think that's very important. I get that asked a lot, uh, and I do have a set of clients that are more than willing to go talk to these clients and prospects and let them know what they think. Have you ever been cited by a professional or regulatory governing body for disciplinary reasons? You want to find out if your guy's a crook. And don't, hey, this is probably one of those questions you ask him that. Don't just take his word. Go out to the SEC website, that's sec.gov, um, and, and also you can, if they're a certified financial planner, you can go to the Financial Planning Standards Board. You can go, and we'll put some links on the website for these, but you can go look up your planner and see if they do have any um, regulatory issues because you need to go find out if you're dealing with an up-and-up person. Um, you also need to ask, will they sign the fiduciary oath? And that's exactly what I was talking about with the AARP, AARP questionnaire is that you've got to make sure they're sitting on the same side of the table as you and they're not just salespeople. Um, do you have a minimum fee? Because I will tell you one of the unfortunate side effects of dealing with um, successful financial planners is they, they do have minimums. Um, and I can tell you from my own experience I have minimums just because – I there's a certain level of service I want to be able to provide to all my clients, and you cannot do that if you took everybody who walked through the door. So you do have to put a minimum level. Um, so Also, you're not overcharging them because there is a fee that you have to charge, so there's a certain level I require just so I know that the time I'm putting into it is not burdening your portfolio. I don't want my fees to hurt your performance. So it requires, since I have to work a certain number of hours to make sure I'm doing a good enough job for you, there's a certain level of um of assets I need you to have so that I'm not charging you more than your portfolio can bear. Um, you also need to ask if they receive any type of referral fees. You want to ask the advisor if they get referral fees from somebody and then do you receive ongoing income from any mutual funds that you recommend in the form of 12B1 which are kind of known as trailing commissions meaning they get those for, for years to come and other continuing payouts. And then ask if there are any financial incentives for you to recommend certain financial products. These are all things that you really need to think about. I'm going to put links to all these different sites so you can go look at these questions as well as research advisors to make sure that you're dealing with the right people. Be very, very careful who you're dealing with because your money is yours and you just never know what type of person you're dealing with and you do not want to get ripped off. That is, um would be the worst nightmare is you build up this nice nest egg and have a great retirement ahead of you, and then you put your money with the wrong person and you lose it. That is just an unfortunate event that you can avoid by preparing yourself and educating yourself to do the right thing. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I want to give you some um, contact information. Once again, you can find for inf- more information about us at money-guy.com. Um, You can also download us at iTunes or directly from the site that I'm sending you to. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me at jbp, that's my initials, at Preston-Cleveland.com. My firm is Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. You you can also check us out at Preston-Cleveland.com. Now, I really think that you guys... Um, have been great listeners, and I appreciate everything that y'all have done and the, the focus and the feedback you provided, and I ask you to please continue to, to send that to us and let us know what you think of the show. Now with that, may God bless you with good friends, good health, and future wealth. Thank you. Until next time, this is Brian.